0: Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant,
1: necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life.
0: Coaches, welcome in to Season 2, Episode 2 of Essential Coaching Conversations. And Kyle, we're gonna jump right into it today. I think, you know, last week we hit it hard with how players impact winning. The chat has been has been carrying on. We've been getting a lot of good feedback about both the chat and kind of this series of episodes and the previous series of episodes. Uh shout out to our guy Brendan Gill coming in hot with like daily tweets about how much he's enjoying the pod, how much he's gaining from it. Um, That's the type of stuff we love to see. Like five-star reviews are great, but ultimately what really makes it worth it for us is hearing from people in and around our community who are being positively impacted. It's a nice little segue to the topic today. Positively impacted by uh, the work that we are doing and the work that we're proud to do. So, Shout out to all of you who've been reaching out um you know and as as we always say, like we couldn't do this without you, and we do this for the listening audience. We also do it for the fact that we would have these conversations anyway and it's things that we've talked about and things that are are close to our hearts and things that we want to rock us through, so we appreciate you um, being along for the ride on that on that front um Kyle, who is your Athlete that wore number two or wears number two, uh, as we get into this second episode of season two,
1: yeah, no brainer for me here. One of my now favorite all time lady textures, Keanu Walker, who just wrapped up an incredible five year career with us. And you know, I've grown up watching lady texture basketball, and there's obviously a lot of greats, Teresa Weatherspoon, Kim Mulkey, who, who are. Shout-out going to be in town this week for a, a really great Champions Plaza unveiling. We're going to honor them along with um, some other, other all-time tech greats. Um, but, you know, getting a chance to watch Kiana up close over the last year and a half, she finished number six all-time in scoring. It was 1,975 points, but she also finished her career with over 140 charges, which is probably the more amazing stat, three-time conference all conference player, three-time all Louisiana. She was the preseason player of the year in the conference going into her fifth and final year. Um, an amazing human being, an incredibly talented young lady. I found out she could paint. Um, so I made her paint me something. And so I've got a Keanu Walker original in my office, which is a a camera with a LaTex logo on it. And just a really amazing, just individual and human being. But, um, again, getting a chance to watch her play and just the motor that she had and being the best player on the floor, both ways and her leadership and, um, getting to wear number two. And, you know, that we've, we've, the, the lady texture record book runs really, really deep. You know, those rafters are full of numbers and, you know, and, and she'll never get to kind of be in that class to a lot of people, but in my eyes she is. Um, and so when we got to number two, I was excited when we went back to the beginning. Cause I was like, I know who my number two is going to be. Um, So she's without a doubt um, number, number two for me. So this is, this will forever and always be the Keanu Walker episode.
0: And and truth be told, and you can go back and check the receipts. My Twitter to this day is a Keanu Walker and Anna Robertson fan account. We, we stand those two and Keanu Walker might be, one of my favorite players of all time as well. And I appreciate you for introducing us to the, to the world that is Kiana Walker's world. We're just living in it.
1: Yeah. So triple go. Fourth ever triple double all to, like ever in program history. She went 27, 15 and 10 in a game and just saw her do a lot of really, really amazing things and just tough. I mean, just it, you can't really say enough good things about her. Yeah. Um, And so obviously sad that she's moving on, but, Getting to play professionally in Greece now, um so she's getting her shot to be a pro, which in my eyes she is um and I so Kiana, but let me before you get to yours, let me also throw out if this would have been episode fifty four so I owe Tommy and Kip a Randy White shout out here, the manster um who probably one of my favorite all time like career statistics. Randy White played like thirteen seasons it was like a nine time pro Bowl over a hundred sacks one interception. And I just think that's kind of funny. Like what that one interception probably felt like for him when he had it thinking like, Oh, that's going to be great when I do it again. And he never did. He had one, Um, but uh, anyway, so the Keanu Walker episode, but if it was 54, I know I owed those guys a Randy white shout out.
0: You, you do. And I was waiting for that. I was, I was hoping you wouldn't forget about that. Uh, my number two is actually going to, to stay in Louisiana. Ironically. Okay. OK, um, my number two is one of probably a quarterback that was ahead of his time. I think I know now you know exactly who I'm talking about, but that's the Virginia boy, Aaron Brooks Brooks. Yeah. Man, Let me tell you something. One of my favorite memories from being a, a Washington football fan, whether it was the old name, the, the, the new name, the, the name in between, whatever was how we would go through probably 20, 30 quarterbacks in like 10 years. And Aaron Brooks with the Saints, for whatever reason, we played the NFC South every year, every other year, whatever. And I remember this man off his back foot, launching like a 67-yard pass. Off his back foot, just flicking it. And, you know, he's cut from the same cloth as guys like Michael Vick. Like, they grew up in the same area. Plaxico Burris is from down there in the 757. And, you know, Aaron Brooks was was somebody who was ahead of his time. Like, I think if Aaron Brooks played today, he would be up there with the Patrick Mahomeses of the world. He'd be up there with the Aaron Rodgerses of the world because he had all that physical talent. He had the ability. um, But I just don't think the NFL had caught up to having more than one Michael Vick type at a time. And now it's all the rage to have a mobile quarterback and a guy with a cannon for an arm, and he was that guy. Um, so shout out to the Virginia boy, Aaron Brooks. Um, tough. Just like a tough quarterback. Hated seeing him on the schedule, and you know I'll never forget just launching that thing. And I think they, they ended up scoring out of it, I think. But anyway. He was he was awesome. Um, Moving, moving forward. Here we go. So you and I are licking our wounds a little bit from the last couple of episodes of Would You Rather. And another shout out to Tommy here. He's so funny. Like he he reached out and he was like, man, I don't know. I might have to see if I can run around Ray Lewis because I'm not trying to get in anywhere near Mike Tyson. And I was like, yeah, I, I get it. I get it you know you got to get option C which is neither so we're going to go a little less violent today so Kyle I'm going to throw this one to you coaches as always we'd love to hear your feedback about this one this one's a little bit uh funnier a little more lighthearted would you rather your child grow up to be the greatest curler of all time so like the sport of curling where they sweep the ice it's the olympic sport you know or become the goofiest wwe superstar of all time i i think i gotta go curler why
1: well i wouldn't want to see my kid in the ring getting beat up all the time
0: so not licking
1: my wounds but like that would make me really nervous and i feel like curling injuries. I don't know what the, the most prolific one is or the more common one is. Might be like I think,
0: carpal tunnel syndrome or tennis. Yeah, like I, I don't know. I think I, I could handle that. No but
1: but not just like not just so that Kendall was a goat, but like I birthed a goat. So like that makes me like, you know what I mean? Like father of the goat. That, what yeah. does that say about me, right? Yeah. So I think Um, I think I would go curl. I mean, it's an Olympic sport. So if you're the goat, you're talking medals on medals on medals and, and those kinds of things. So I think that would be, I think that would be really cool. Um, and, and it's not like you would live in the spotlight, like all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just every four years, like nobody would really know who you are, but every four years when the Olympics rolls around, people watch curling. So you would still kind of get a little bit of maybe a little bit of that fame and spotlight, but it wouldn't be like, LeBron where you can't go to Right. Walmart or eat. Like not that LeBron would probably ever go to Walmart, but um <laughs> you can't go you can't go eat or do could anything. Could you imagine like that. just
0: like walking around at like an LA Walmart and like all of a sudden messy going LeBron to, James?
1: Messy going to publix and stuff like that. Yeah, like you can't <laughs> do it. So I feel like Kendall is the greatest curler in the world. She could still go enjoy a pizza somewhere, mm. but you still get to be the the greatest of all time and kinda live in the shadows and Um, But at the same time, like have that. So I would probably go a curler.
0: So you and I are going the complete opposite way here, because I would choose without a doubt for my child to be the goofiest WWE superstar of all time. And here's why I say that. Number one, WWE is like the most followed brand across all social media platforms when it comes to sports entertainment. Right. So if my kid was into that sort of thing which is why they would go down that career path right like that would be the ultimate of just being the funny person in wwe and it's some it's got it still has a massive following like i'm a wwe fan i know that in our thursday night group chat it blows up whenever anything big happens in wwe yeah. like you know, there there is something to be said for the characters that exist in that universe. And if my kid had the opportunity to be part of that, but not only be part of that, but as you said, be like the goat of a, a particular subset of characters. It doesn't mean they're not good at what they do, right? They're excellent at what they do. They're playing a role and they're an athlete. They're getting to live those dreams like I would be over the moon. And even if they got to go through a bunch of tables and do a lot of funny, embarrassing stuff, you know what? You still got to pay them. So, you know, shout out to all the WWE superstars who put it on the line. And like, you know, people like Santino Morella, they made a fool of themselves for years, but uh, we'll end up in the WWE Hall of Fame. And like, you know, they built careers out of of that. Um, But I do agree with you about the going out in public piece. Like, you know, now the whole kayfabe thing has sort of, fallen by the wayside for a lot of people. But like, you know, I find it difficult to believe that Roman Reigns can just go out in public and go to Walmart, you know, or like Cody Rhodes can just walk down the street without people being like, yo, that's Cody Rhodes. You know what I mean? So I do get that part. They would get bombarded with a lot of uh, a lot of the fans. But I'll tell you, that would be a, a really cool thing to see as a parent is my kid like, just dominating for ratings on W on Raw on Monday nights, (laughs) just being the biggest goofball in the whole world and having a blast doing it.
1: And you could get the video game. You could, yeah. And like, you know, play with your kid.
0: Exactly. uh, Make them the world champion and they're still a goofball.
1: That'd be pretty cool too.
0: The the curling, I don't know if they have a curling video game. EA Sports, you gotta get on that.
1: We would we would push for it.
0: We would push for it. If Kendall if a Kendall becomes the world's greatest curler She's going to end up in a video game. I guarantee. You. Yeah,
1: and the, and the cool part is, is, she might be. We just don't know yet. That's I, true. Like, we haven't. We haven't tried. There's not a lot of curling arenas. I don't even know what we call them. Not a lot of curling courts, ice rinks. The, curling, Boston, uh, yeah.
0: Well, because they're different too. I don't know. We're getting off topic here. We've been talking about this for like 20 minutes, but curling. I found this out when I lived in Oklahoma because people would go. It was like a like a recreational activity at the ice rinks it's like a special kind of ice that's like textured. Mm. And so it's, it takes a lot more like resources to texture the ice, the way it's supposed to be. And like, you can't just do it at your regular neighborhood ice rink. Like you have to have a special, you know, they like drop the water in a particular way so that it's rough. So it doesn't slide all the way down. It's kind of crazy, but anyway, um, the more, you know, the more, you know, learn something new every day. So, in this, in this vein, as we, move, as we move on here into the actual topic for tonight, um, last week we talked about how players impact winning. And the biggest thing that we came up with for, as a quick review for those that maybe haven't listened or, or listened to half of it or whatever it is, um, was the term engagement. And you did a really, really good job getting from engagement to health and thinking about our four priorities, but everything starting with that engagement that leads to connection, so on and so forth. And I wanna I wanna throw it to you, but I want to preface all of this again, this conversation with impact, when we're talking about impact, impact is neutral. It doesn't care whether it's positive or negative. And there's sort of this old adage of like, well, you're going to have culture no matter what. It's whether you choose to build it intentionally or not. The same thing applies for impact. And so you can have the best of intentions, but the impact that you have is going to be either positive or negative on the overall piece of or the overall part of the program that you're responsible for. And so when we talk specifically about coaches, and this is where I'm going to throw it to you first we refer to coaches as the chief environmental officers they are the ones who are in charge of this whole thing and can make or break it so in that way the coach's impact is largely one that is outsized and sort of it almost like skews to the extremes more so than maybe a player because the players are – there's more of the players than there are coaches. And ultimately the coach is the one that's in charge of that environment until they hand that over to the players. So I want to throw that to you to start us off. But those are some of the initial thoughts that I have, especially about influence being – or impact being neutral – but also that the coach's impact is going to be outsized, especially when the players are not at a point where they are leading and impacting that environment in a more sustainable way.
1: Yeah, the 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 CEO part is where my mind immediately goes, because you're controlling, that's what you get to control, sort of the vibe in the room and, and the, the then and the now, and which is our, our climate conversation that we've talked about over and over and over again about, not just the the deep rooted cultural things, but you have the opportunity to impact your climate right now. The, the moment you walk into a room and then it can change in an instant as well. And I think going from the, the engagement to connections, to speed, to health, you do have to start with the engagement piece and all of that. And if you've ever done like in like a public speaking course, or you watched a Ted talk, or you read a good book or a movie, like they have to hook you, right? Like you've got to be able to prime the room. And I feel like the best coaches are, are master teachers, but I think they're also master crafters of that environment. Most specific, more specifically, you know, the, the first impression of the day, the first five minutes of a practice, the first hook in a meeting, you've got to be able to kind of set that tone and then be able to, to steer things back. And I think that's where the coach's impact is, is, is its greatest. And I, I we talked in the the last episode regarding players like what this is and what this isn't we're not talking about or excuse me in terms of players we were not talking about like stats scoring there are a billion other ways to impact winning other than just the stats and I think when you when you go to coaches again we're going to the top of the pyramid how do I impact this game as a coach oh I scout my game plan was good I made adjustments at halftime right it was the amount of hours that I put in watching film. It was the way we did our walk through those. And again, all that stuff is just very surface to me. And the more I go through this and we talk about it, the more I'm around sports and the more I learn from really great coaches and teachers, the more I believe that all the stuff that you see on television, all the stuff that you see going to a game that we really kind of write about in papers and care about really is the least impactful stuff that there is. It's all the stuff you don't see. It's the or like the, picture of a glacier right the the iceberg like you only see the tip of that it's everything else that's below that um which to me is a a, a perfect metaphor for our pyramid you're impacting the human component you're impacting person and and player development you're impacting the environment and then yeah there are some things schematically that you can do to you should have called a timeout here you went zone or anything like that but Largely speaking, you know, if your team was more connected while they were playing, man, you wouldn't have had to have gone zone in the first place. Right. Like a lot of that stuff largely doesn't matter if all these other things are sort of taken care of. And like, oh, yeah, it came down to that one rebound. But if we would have rebounded the ball three times in the first half, we'd have been up eight instead of two. And that all of a sudden that rebound wouldn't have seemed so big all of a sudden. And. I think a lot of it is, you kind of alluded to it here a minute ago, like coaches have to be able to allow the space for their players to make the impact. And in a lot of ways, the coach's impact is giving up a lot of that control, crafting the environment, building the trust, building the relationship, doing all of that work, and then relinquishing a lot of that back to the players. So then they then um, can, can impact that as best they possibly can. So, yeah, I think we start with, you know, what do we think this is? What do we think this isn't? And and I don't think it's a top of the pyramid schematic thing. I, I I think everything is rooted in in foundational, you know, human component, recruiting everyone every day, next connection, all of that stuff. And your mood, your attitude, your gravity in the room can really make or break a lot of that in a lot of instances. And, And if, you know, just think back to the teacher you had in fifth or sixth grade that was impactful to you. Like you knew when they walked in, whether it was going to be a good day or a bad day, that JV coach that you had in football, like you knew practice was going to be good or bad based on how they walked in. That's them impacting that environment. And as I'll kind of ping pong it back to you, I I kind of want to throw this at you. And if I, if I say this statement, I, I basically tell me I'm wrong. If I, With me saying this, I feel like most of the time in most situations, impact being neutral. Coaches are more likely to negatively impact winning in the moment than they are positively impacting winning in the moment.
0: I'd like for you to tell me I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Sorry, I forgot how to use Zoom for a second. I was muted. Um I don't I don't think you're wrong. But I think the reason that you say that, and I'll, I'll ping pong this right back to you and we can have a conversation about this part. I think the reason that you say that, and that and I agree with you is because largely we haven't, as coaches, done the work ahead of time to know how to positively impact the situation that we're in later. Thoughts? 100%. It's, it's the
1: work that hasn't been done, and then in those, quote-unquote, like crucial moments, winning moments, mood, you know, momentum-swinging moments, It just seems to me, and again, I'm going back to like me, myself, I'm I'm looking myself in the mirror when I say all this, right? When I inserted myself into these moments, it was always in a negative way or at the wrong time because I felt like I had to, or it was me. And you hear us talk a lot about coaches being the least committed person in the room. That's what I'm talking about. It's the body language. It's the way we talk to the ref. It's us yanking a kid out because they make one mistake, even though we put them back in and we said we weren't going to. It's us not doing the things that we tell our players that we're going to do. And then we end up basically sort of killing their momentum and belief in us because they're looking at us to be these modeled you know, examples of, of how we're going to talk, act, think, play and all this and that. And then we're not that when it gets real. And they're looking at us going, well, you're yelling at me to be this particular person, and you're not that person. But yet you're the 40-year-old with 20 years of experience, and I'm a 15-year-old kid. Like, what the heck? And then we feel like a lot of times I, I think players impact winning more than coaches do. And I feel like that's when coaches decide, no, I got to start controlling this. I have to leave my mark on this game. I have to show people I know how to coach. And again, pot kettle right here. I, there were, I, I, I vividly remember thinking like, okay, I've got to do something here because I need to coach in this moment. I've got to insert myself in here in some way. And I just feel like, you know, eight, nine times out of 10, when a coach does that, it's for the wrong reasons and it's not going to turn
0: out very well. But so to the other side of that, right. So we're talking about these two ends of maybe a weight scale. If you can, you know, the scales of justice, right? like. Yep one will always outweigh the other at a, at a certain times and certain places of whatever you're doing as a coach. But let's think about the other side of that. So we've got the performative aspect of like stomping around, you know, for you taking off your jacket and throwing it right. He yeah. does the same thing. You learned that Louisiana tech brethren. Right. I get it. Yeah. Right. You know, it, but then there's the other side of it where the coach feels like it's their responsibility to abdicate their responsibility because the kids just don't want to be coached in that moment. And you and I have both seen that, right? Mm-hmm. In various places that we've been, where the, the the head coach or whoever, you know, whoever is the decision maker sits down and just kind of throws their hands at the kids and is like, screw them. They don't want to be coached. I don't know what to do with them. F them. And it's like, now, wait a minute, like that right there is also negatively impacting them. But it's two completely different actions that have been taken. Right. So I think there, this is where it's like. There's more than one way to do this. We would both agree with that. You and I have very different coaching styles as it comes to how we would communicate with kids. Even even things like what actions we would call in a close game or like how we would use our timeouts, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Those are all idiosyncrasies that coaches have. But as you were talking, I wrote down our favorite or my favorite phrase, at least the consistency of positive habits, right? Neither one of those examples is a positive habit that we need to make consistent of either jumping up and yelling and, and trying to coach them up, quote unquote. Or Mm -hmm. sitting down and being like, nah, screw them. I don't want to coach these kids. They're not worth it. So what are, for you as a coach, the consistent positive habits that you have that breed what kids have said they want the most, which is trust and relationships? So this harkens back to our two-part episode on what athletes want. So when we're talking about coaches impacting winning, is it a fair assessment to say this? And I'll, I'll, you can tell me I'm I'm off base, and we can talk about it. The best way coaches can impact winning is by creating a consistency of positive habits, aka their character, that breeds trust and relationships amongst their team with each other and with the team and the individuals on the team with the coach. Is that the best way coaches can impact winning? Yeah, I mean I would say I would say it is, but it's again, it's the things that you're
1: doing outside of the game. And I think that's maybe the point to this episode is if you're a coach and you're sitting here on like, okay, how can I best impact winning for my team? It's not what you're doing on game day during the actual game. And that's what I mean by like largely negatively impacting it. It's because even if you're inserting yourself at the wrong moment or if you're opting out in that wrong moment, those are two completely different ends of the spectrum. But at the core, it's the same thing. You're making it about you. You're sort of inserting or de-insert. I don't know what the word would be there. uh, Ejecting yourself. Sure. Because you want to make it about you. Because again, it's got to be, well, I'm either got a coach here to show y'all how smart I am or I'm not going to do it and I'm going to let y'all see how y'all fail without me, which is not the exact antithesis of of, of what you just described. And so I think how you most, you know, beneficially impact winning is it's it's doing the recruiting piece, the environmental piece, the trust piece. And teaching kids how to actually win themselves, and you largely impact winning by not having to do it for them, because they're the ones with the ball in their hands, and they're the ones that are actually making the decisions. And I, again, I take this back to my days as a tennis coach. You largely can't do much for your your kid out there on the on the singles court during a match. They're by and large they're by themselves, and you get exposed on the work that you've either done or you haven't done. And it's up to them to figure it out and they sink or swim and then you learn and you see if you can get better and those kinds of things. And that's what I've always really admired about that profession and that sport and the coaches that are in that profession. Um, because you're, you're, you 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 can not sit there with the PlayStation controller and, and do it all yourself where we as basketball coaches are probably the worst, you know, out of all those sports, um, You know, one because there's so few players to control. They're five. It's very close proximity. We can yell at them and talk to them and do all those kinds of things. It's easy to sub. You know, there's certain things in like soccer where it's a bigger pitch. You can't just sub at at random and kind of willy nilly like that. I mean, so I feel like we as basketball coaches are the ones that that are probably the most to kind of look look ourselves in the mirror when it comes to this kind of thing.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But I, I just. I feel like the best coaches in the world do the least on game day. I, I just think that's by and large, and, and by least, I don't mean like being lazy and quitting. I, just because that mean, I mean that they've they have done the necessary prep work. They've got their game model. They've got their essential elements. They've discussed what their systems are. They've put their players in situations where they've been through game like. You know instances where they've had to sort of rocka and figure those things out themselves, um, and I guess that's just that's kind of where my mind goes when it comes to a coach impacting winning. you it's it's the eighty or let's go fake statistic here. It's the ninety percent of the stuff outside of the game, but I think the by and large the public view and a lot and a lot of view from what coaches think is, I really only impact winning while I'm coaching while i'm standing up and i'm yelling and i'm doing all those kinds of things and game day is about me and i've got to bring my a game and i've got to be my best because i've got to go in here and move all these chess pieces because i'm so freaking smart i have the ability to outsmart the other coach so even if we're not prepared in this way or that way all i got to do is sauce something up on the board or i'll go in and make some kind of a halftime adjustment which in reality if you had done a lot of the work to begin with there wouldn't be adjustments that we needed to make in the first place
0: but that's that's the character of our team showing through right so there's two things that that come to mind as you're saying that the first one is our adjustments should never catch us by surprise like rarely should they ever catch us by surprise because we should have a consistent language and a consistent mindset of how we believe the game should be played. And so largely, if we trust and we have relationships within our team and the small societies, you know, take care of each other and there's communication and this and that and whatever, the adjustment from playing man to man to go into play zone Is far less daunting and reactionary than it is proactive to say hey we know we can do this let's do this better for the next five minutes then we'll go back to playing man to man like think about how that changes the conversation or like hey we gotta switch kyle off of bubba because bubba's cooking him like we gotta put adrian on him that's not something that should catch us by surprise it should be like We've built up enough equity within our team to say, yeah, hey, you know what, Adrian? Yeah, you are a better defender than me. Take him, right? I'll take yours and there's not going to be any slippage there. And eventually we trust our team to just handle those things. But we have to be able to, like you said, put them in those environments. And and it goes back a little bit to, I think this is episode six uh, of season one of hacking standards. And experimentation. So we should have experimented with those things, and we're sort of hacking the standards of like how we communicate with each other. And then that drives the ability to make those adjustments where it's not adjusting under duress, but we are just calmly saying, hey, here's a little tweak we're going to make. And we've done this before. Here's what we're seeing that's not working according to our game model. Here is how we can fix that. Let's try it. And if the other team beats it, fine. Like we'll go back and do it again. Right, but we shouldn't have to feel like we got to reinvent the wheel because they made a shot. Right? And so the other thing that that I think of and this is, you know, my the blessing of living in in the Boston area is that everybody here is crazy about the Celtics so much so that like at lunch i I cannot escape talking about the celtics, right like it's just it happens it's like, oh, did you see the Celts game last night, whatever, right, and I am not a Celtics fan, I think I've been very clear about that since day one. I'm a Spurs fan, you know, closet wizards fan, just from being from the area, but anyway, so. During the playoffs, I remember this vividly. This was the conversation. It was at my barbershop. It was at the lunch table. It was in the office. It was on TV. It was everywhere. Uh, Joe, Joe Mazzulla is going to be fired because the Celtics just have imploded. He's impacting winning negatively because they're shooting a lot of threes. And they're the, like playing this free-flowing style. Like, listen, Joe Mazzula is a Brian McCormick disciple. For those that don't know that, look it up. Right? They play literally play advantage basketball in Boston. Here's the reality of what the impact of winning looks like on a coach's on a coach's side. And this is me thinking about reading half of Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. All of these people that are talking about how Joe Missoula is a bullshit coach, like he's not doing anything to fix it, whatever, whatever, don't really realize that the Celtics were taking good shots that just didn't go in. Mm -hmm. And if the Celtics shot it well, Joe Missoula is the coach of the year. Give him a super max extension, whatever that looks like for a coach. Because the team wins because the style of play that he has chosen for the team that fits their personnel results in winning. But if the only thing is the ball is not going in the basket and we go in through a slump, whatever it is, and yes, we're trying to get the ball inside, yes, you know, the bigs were hurt, whatever it is. At some point, you got to trust your players to make plays, and your impact on winning is literally giving them the most confidence that they can just go do what needs to be done. And Joe Mazzullo was that guy. He got out of the way, and he was like, listen, you guys will shoot your way out of this. You're going to be fine. And what did the Celtics do? I believe they went to the Eastern Conference Finals again, right? Am I wrong about that? I don't know. They did, right? They've been there I like four so. <laughs> times. They've been there like four times in a row. Right? So now the conversation turns to oh, well, Joe Missoula is, you know, hanging on by a thread. What's he going to do now that Jalen Brown got this Supermax? And what are they going to do with Jason Tatum and blah, 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 blah? Right. They do the same thing they do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. That's their job. Right. But Joe Missoula was the best coach in the NBA when the Celtics were number one in the East and rolling people by 20. Exact same stuff, exact same person, exact same roster. They just started losing a few more games, and they started making a few less shots. That doesn't make him a bad coach. It means that his impact on winning was then overshadowed by the player's impact on winning. And because the players were not able to knock those shots down after being put in a position by their coach and by each other, it's okay. That happens. The best coaches subscribe to the theory, and this is my theory. I'm not saying I'm the best coach in the world, but my theory is if the only thing that's going to beat us is us, we're in a really good spot. And that's what happened with the Celtics but everybody everybody up here wanted to blame a first year head coach who's 34 years old and went from the back of the bench to the the head seat in about a day and a half and still delivered a hell of a season yeah they i mean they won the division they were second in the conference and then they lost to the, I remember they lost to the
1: heat in 7 so they were game away from
0: making the finals. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, part of that,
1: something I wrote down here is one of my favorite phrases that belief moves efficacy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and part of that is staying true to your systems and who you, who you think you should be and your vision and your mission. And a lot of that is where I think you see coaches, they change things from year to year, you know, Hey, we ran this last year, now we're going to move to this system, or I saw this and saw this at a clinic or on Twitter or this DVD and I'm going to move to this. I'm going to move to that. And again, being the least committed in the room because you don't have a system to believe in or follow. And I'm not saying that you should be stubborn. If things aren't working, you don't adjust and adapt. That's not what we're, we're talking about, but he knew that was the best way that was going to try to get them to win. And it, some of that is you've got to continue to believe in what it is that you're doing and your players pick up on a lot of that. And I think that's where, again I, that that's kind of why i say like i think coaches have the ability to to negatively impact winning more easily than positively impact winning because it doesn't take near as much to tear it down it doesn't take near as much to create a bad mood and a bad taste in your mouth than it does a a, a good mood or a good vibe in the room and i i was thinking about you know things i know we've all said you know it, it just in our minds we're like we have a game and we have uh we have a shoot around right and it's like shoot around was too good we wasted all our shots oh yeah we were too locked in like oh man like i can't believe like we were but if you have a bad shoot around it's like oh my god we don't care we don't we don't want to be here we're not ready and there's just as many like crappy shoot arounds that result in amazing games probably more so than great shoot arounds that result in crappy games. And I think part of that is is where coaches can truly impact winning. And again, I I think a lot of this, 90%, is the in-between stuff. It's between the games. Like your season is long. It's Mm -hmm. hard. And, you know, you want your team to be locked in 110% of the time and focused always. And this warm-up is just like a game. And we're going to sit out here until we get it right. And We're not going to leave until we get this rep in and we're going to do, but, but meanwhile, like you're also not refilling their tank. You're not treating them like human beings and and not robots. They have to have rest. They have to have recovery. And so I, I just think about like all the, all the negative things, all the damage we do in the first week, two weeks, month of the season that comes back and bites us. When At the end, when it quote-unquote matters and we're in district or conference or playoffs or a double overtime game, we don't have anything left. And it's like, yeah, we ran out of gas. And it's like, well, we might have had a little more gas if we hadn't have done X, Y, and Z earlier in the week. We might have had a little more gas if we didn't wear them out in the off season when that was their time to get back and come back and refuel and refocus and want to be around it and get their minds right again. And again, that's where I feel like we as coaches, sometimes the the less is more. And that's where we control those things. It's our job to set that schedule, to set that tone, to set, you know, basically how much we're pushing them. And and I remember as a head coach and as an assistant on staff, we would talk about, man, we've had like a really great week. Like we've been locked in all week, but by Saturday, when you have to play, you're gassed. And maybe if we weren't quite so locked in, but we can't, we can't say those things out loud as coaches because we can't admit that we might not be locked in all the time, but we've talked about this in previous episodes before. Like you can't be at a hundred all the time. It's impossible. You have to kind of, not that you're saying like you have to turn that switch on and off when it matters or when it doesn't, but you have to learn when to throttle down a little bit. And that's where I feel like we can, we can impact that.
0: But let me let me ask you this, because it brings up an important point that I think coaches need to consider. Is there value in learning how to do that, in learning how to turn it on and off and being able to regulate? All right. Hey, I have now my routine. This is when I'm going to lock in. It doesn't mean that I'm not focused, Mm -hmm. but there's levels to all of these things. Yep. Right. And so how do we then move the needle for our players to be able to say like, hey, when you enter that threshold into class, locking in for class, when you leave, cool, you can be, you know, who you are. But like when we're in, in, in quote unquote work mode, for example, right. Just to, to make this easy to palette for, in, in terms of the conversation, Being able to recognize and be self-aware how your actions impact other people. In class, if you're cutting up in class, you're impacting other people negatively. Same way that on the court, if you're cutting up and you're going half speed and you're bullshitting your way through it, you're impacting our team negatively. So is that not a skill to learn self-awareness? And in so doing, like be able to regulate that that level of locked inedness, and we as coaches can also say, like, hey, we're at like a we're at like a fifty percent right now. Like, we don't need to be like you know like lockstep, locked in. It's okay if we're a little bit relaxed right now because this is going to help us retain. And when we actually do have to ramp it up, we're going to be able to ramp it up because we didn't spend all that energy already. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm off base with that. I don't know.
1: No, I think it's kind of funny, ironic, whatever. When you hear like, oh, you know, that person just has an extra gear and it's like, well, if they had the extra gear, why aren't they at that all the time? Like, how do you have something in the tank reserved? You know, if if that's the case, then you're not at a hundred percent all the time. And it's just, it's just some of this cultural BS that, you know, we're supposed to be this or that all the time. And, 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 you know, thinking about like horse racing, you know, the, horse goes into the gate, you know, a little earlier than they're used to because they're on an inside lane and horses essentially mentally run their races and if you don't get them out in time, they mentally run their race and you see them like they look like they're wet, they've sweated through, they they call it washing out. And a horse will wash out in the gate before they ever even get out to actually run the race. And you know, a quarter of the race or a couple furlongs in, like they're just done and they don't they don't run. And it's like, "Oh, what was that jockey doing? Like, you didn't let him go or they were it's fixed or whatever and it's like no the horse washed himself out and i just feel like we as coaches have more control over that than we think and a lot of times we're washing our athletes out because we're wearing them out and we're making them sort of mentally run the race before the race actually happens and we really need to have something left in that tank to actually run that race and when you think about it in terms of an entire season or an entire career for a player if they might be with you for 4 years or more then how worn down and grinded down are they by the time it's over, and then you end your season and you're February tired in November because we didn't replenish and and again that that's we we as a head coach, you as the boss, you as the manager, you decide if we practice today or not you decide if that's a six a m versus an eleven a m you decide if we come in on a Sunday or not. High school football coaches out there right now, Mm -hmm. how many of you after a game on a Friday night are going to make your staff stay up and watch the film that night till 2 a.m.? That happens.
0: And then you have practice at like nine.
1: And and those coaches are probably the ones that have won 27 straight district championships. Mm -hmm. And so it's viewed as like that works for them, right? But do we have to do that? Is there a better way? Why are they winning 27 straight district championships? Like, though, I mean, again, like you said, there's levels and nuance to a lot of this stuff. But do you think those assistant coaches want to stay up till two o'clock in the morning after teaching a full load on Friday, going to a pep rally, not being able to go home? They've got a baby at the house, a wife, blah, blah, blah. Like, we couldn't come catch that film Saturday afternoon after we mentally process it and digest everything? Mm hmm but that's going to happen all over the country this week. And now do that for 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Now that same assistant coach has been with you for three years. You got three years out of them, but you probably could have got six or
0: seven out of them, but you've worn them down to nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think there's, you know, when we're, I remember when I had a bigger staff. So, like, right now I have one assistant. She's amazing. Like, top of the top. When I had three assistants and then I was in charge of the JV in the freshman program, these were conversations we had as a staff, right? After a game, especially, like, a Friday night game when we had practice the next morning at 10, I don't want to talk to you after the game. I don't want to commiserate with you if we lost, right? If you have something you need to say, like, cool, we'll talk about it. But like the 24-hour rule exists for a reason. And so I think this is another piece of impacting winning where like coaches want the 24-hour rule to insulate themselves from parents, which I get. Listen, you and I both ad nauseum. We've talked about that. I think there needs to be just a 24-hour rule after competition in general. Mm-hmm. that we all just insulate from each other. And that's part of building relationships and trust too that may be a little bit countercultural and here's why I say that. So we we've, we've documented through our research relationships and trust is what players have said that they want overwhelmingly so on and so forth. If I am emotional after a game, which coaches are known to be emotional, or even during a game. And I take it upon myself after a game to offer emotional feedback, could be in the form of support, could be in the form of chastising, could be in the form of anything. And then upon further reflection, whether it's watching the film, whether it's having a coaches meeting the next day, whether it's whatever, I realize that my feedback was ill intended, had a uh, the impact wasn't what, what it should have been, it wasn't true what was said. How often are coaches going back to apologize to their kids for that emotional statement after a game when if we just waited 24 hours and rocketed through it? we could probably give them something way more worthwhile that helps us trust them more. That helps them trust us more.
1: And, and to that point, that's where another caveat of that is, that's the coach doing more damage Mm -hmm. than good Yeah, because it's a heck of a lot harder to take that back. Right. And likely you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to apologize for that. You can't take it back. Maybe you apologize for it. Maybe you don't, but there's going to be some of that, damage already done. And that's why I feel like a lot of times, like we as, as bosses, as leaders, as managers or whatever, when we go to act, when we go to say, when we go to do, we really, really need to think about, okay, like, is this going to be a more of a negative impact or have an actual return on the investment of what it is I'm about to do? Especially it, if I haven't done the groundwork that gives me the capital to do those things.
0: That's exactly what it is, right? Have we done the cap, the groundwork that allows our kids to have ownership in that experience. I mean, how many times can a kid just say, Hey, no, I don't want any feedback right now? No is never an option mm-hmm. unless you allow it to be an option. So, I'll give you an example taking over a new program. I went to go watch one of our kids play in an AAU game here locally in New England. And She played, they blew out the other team and, but the other, you know, the other team played fairly well. Her team just had more talent and she comes and sits next to me in the stands, kind of like her mom was off talking to somebody else. And she and I are just having a a conversation after the game. And I was like, you know, Hey, what did your AAU coach say to you? What, you know, what was sort of the strategy, whatever, whatever. And I said, Hey, I noticed something on defense especially watching from afar. Like I had no emotional connection or attachment to the game. I was just watching the kid play because she's one of my players and I'm there to support her. But it still is a relatively neutral observance. Like I don't really care about the outcome of the game. I just want her to stay healthy and have fun. I said, hey, I noticed a couple things, but I'm not going to tell them to you unless you tell me it's okay for me to tell you right now after you just played. And I think that was probably the first time any adult had solicited her permission to say something to her about how she played. And she was like, no, no, please tell me. Like, I want to learn. Like, it's okay. You can tell me. But just that moment of, like, asking for her consent to be given feedback developed more trust and developed a better relationship for the two of us than me telling her what I saw just because I'm smart and I'm the coach. And we had a very fruitful conversation about defense and like stance and things like that. And she was like, that makes a lot of sense. I'm really glad you told me that. I'm going to try that the next time I play. Whether she did or not, I'm never going to know because I didn't see the next game. But the just the ability to reflect with that player and ask for her permission made all the difference in the world because how many of our kids are getting information through a fire hose from the adults in their life, namely from their coaches who may or may not realize what they are saying to their players on a a moment-to-moment basis. I think it's really hard to be that self-aware. Mm-hmm. But we're not saying you have to measure everything you say. It's can we be more intentional about how we go about communicating to build that trust and build those relationships? And it reminds me, um, that, back to one of the previous things you said about like, that can do more harm than good, and you've already said it and you can't take it back. There's this Chinese proverb I, I believe it's a Chinese proverb, that something like even the, the slowest words cannot be chased out, like, even the slowest words spoken cannot be chased by the swiftest horse. Something like that. And it speaks exactly to that point of, even if you think you're well-intentioned, and you want to say what you want to say, and you're trying to impact them positively, and all of these things, once you say it, you can never take it back. You can never put the words back in your mouth. And so that's that's I think one part of the actions that coaches take, and listen, I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it in management roles, we're guilty of it. like that's part of being a human being, right? But when we raise our awareness, when we reflect on those conversations, and we understand that it's okay to take a minute, it's okay to not have to have that conversation right afterwards. I would rather you be effusive with praise because I think that impacts winning too being effusive with celebration and praise for, for the things that we want to see and we save those other comments for after we are absolutely sure that those things happened, that right there impacts winning massively in, in trending in the positive direction.
1: Yeah. I want, as you were saying that a a phrase that I've, I've heard and I kind of like, is like, you can't unring the bell. Right. Like once that happens, it's it's done and gone. So and, I, and like you said, you can't be perfect with this. I mean, like nobody is. But even if you take a step back and think like, OK, if I could reduce my negative impact by 20 percent, that would be massive. Right. In terms of 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 being able to move forward, that's progress over perfection and those kinds of things. And really, I think it comes back to you have to be able to trust your players because they're the ones that are actually doing the things on the field and the, that kind of stuff. And, and all that work is happening in the in-between, underneath the surface of the water where the, the iceberg actually lives. And if if we if we viewed our impact in terms of, okay, is this going to negatively impact us or is this going to positively impact us? Again, I just think having a bit of that awareness and just, being intentional about knowing that we are impacting winning either positively or negatively. And I I don't think us as coaches, I think if you were to ask us, how do you impact winning? And they listed off 10 things, nine to 10 of those things are all going to be positive. How many coaches would list off nine or 10 negative ways in which they can impact winning? And I think that right there is the powerful exercise. So if you're listening to this right now and you wanted to start, really rocking and reflecting on this and trying to actually get better see if you can list every which way that you feel you can impact winning either positively or negatively and i would be willing to bet that that negative list is a heck of a lot longer than you think